Hey everyone, welcome back to Tina Apologetics. Super pumped to join us today to have Tim Howard from Invoking Theism. Um, we're responding to a recent case against God from Emerson Green. So Tim, what's up, man? How you doing? Sub, dude. Thank you so much for having me on again. I love coming on your channel. Yeah, that was a super strong sub, dude. I was like, wow, I was expecting that. <laughs> um, Off to a good start. It's, we got the energy. We're ready to roll. So what we're doing today is Emerson Green, and I'll just pull it up right here, um, did a debate with John Buck on the existence of God. Oh, um, and what basically what we're going to do is just respond to that video, um, looking at Emerson's opening statement. Um, the speed is bumped up to one and a half speed, but if you want to watch the full debate, it's like down below. And yeah, Tim, any thoughts before we dive right into this opening? Yeah, I mean, it's cool because I was able to um, uh, meet Emerson and actually talk to them both in person in August. So last mm -hmm. August. Um, and excuse me, I was on uh, Emerson's podcast. So with uh, John Buck and a lot of other people, so um, cool, cool dudes, friends of mine, um, and um, just glad to be uh, participating uh, in the future in this kind of discussion they had. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I I say the same. Emerson's great, and obviously, this is to try to like look at truth and not just like try to like bash Emerson in the head. Um, <laughs> no intention of that here. Mm -mm. So, no. ready to go, Tim? You want to just dive right into this opening? Let's get it. Yeah. All right, let's do it. All right. Well, thank you for that opening, John. Um, in my rebuttal, I look forward to responding to the arguments that John has brought to the fore. But first, I would like to build a positive case of my own. I'm going to present a few arguments in support of the claim that God probably does not exist. Um, and just so you guys know, just unfortunately, the way that StreamYard is set up here, Dustin and John, um, if you kind of like wave your arms at me furiously, I'll know that something has gone wrong. <laughs> yeah, like that. But other than that, there's not much of a chance of me <laughs> being communicated with here. Sorry about that. Um, okay, so moving along here. Um, I think of myself both as an atheist and a naturalist. So naturalists believe that reality is exhausted by nature, containing nothing supernatural. There's only the natural world. Naturalism then entails that there's no supernatural being such as God. Whereas theists believe that in addition to the natural world, which is common ground between us, there's also a conscious personal designer of our world, an unsurpassably great being of perfect love. So a range of the data of human experience is more expected and better explained by naturalism than by theism. For okay, so Tim, do you have any thoughts you want to like to bring up before we get into like his data points? Yeah, I mean, first thought is I don't really... um. I don't, I, when it comes to defining naturalism, it's, it's so, it's such a strange thing to, to do, not in the sense that we shouldn't define things, but it's just that it's defined in so many ways by so many different people. Mm -hmm. And, um, for the most part, I, I don't really think that's a good understanding of it. Um, even though that seems to be more of like what someone like Graham Oppie would say naturalism is. Um, but for me, I just, I'm as a, you know, aspire, aspiring philosopher, I kind of, a, you know, when I think about categories, right, right. I think about like, um, how do we look at categories and like, are we able to even adopt an ontology that, um, is irrespective of, of categories, right? So there's, you know, there's different deflationary views of, um, whether or not there's these metaphysically fundamental categories. So is there something as metaphysically fundamental as natural as a category? It's debated. It's 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 not at all agree that there are these you know um, metaphysically fundamental categories right for ontologies rather than these concepts and these concepts can be revised and they can be changed and they can be viewed differently. And so for me, it comes down to fundamentally there are objects, uh, but what's considered a natural object needs to be more defined. Mm -hmm. um, but ultimately, I I what I how I try to look at naturalism is not in terms of ontology, but axiology. 
So I try to look at naturalism in terms of kind of what Ted Poston says in his paper on um, the intrinsic probability of grand theories. And he says that naturalism basically is this idea and, and, and Emerson is going with a more of an indifference kind of naturalism where basically there are no normative constraints on the distribution of value and disvalue that would obtain in a world. Um, that's how I understand indifference to be. How I understand natural is a different story, right? And so what I try to do is when I try to think about things in ontologies, I try to think about like, um, you know, somebody like what Jonathan Schaffer has worked on, such as like uh, metaphysical foundationalism and things like priority pluralism or priority monism, right? Thinking about reality in terms of that, right? Um, and then, um, but that's still consistent with an idea that there's a theism. So it really, you really have to build out like what these foundations really are for me to understand what is natural and was considered not natural. That's my mm -hmm. only issue with defining things this way. But I think that for just making predictions sake, um, if fundamental reality has no normative constraints, then that's a good understanding of the kind of naturalism that Emerson is going with. So that's my only thoughts. Yeah, I mean, it's good. It's obviously going to be hard because when we're responding to Emerson here, like it's like a 17 minute opening statement. So you can't like flesh everything out here. His whole entire world being 17 minutes. Um, but I, I mean, I totally agree with you that we, like, like what is naturalism is a very like um, challenging question. Like Emerson's like a, not a physicalist. And I think there'd be some physicalists that say like any um, form of non-physicalism would be supernaturalism. And Emerson's like, wait, wait yeah, that's Graham Hoppe. Um, so yeah. yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot here. So yeah. First, soteriological confusion. Salvation is a common feature of theism. Some will be saved and others will not. This is a common belief among theists, far more common than the belief that all shall be saved in the end. Further, theists often imagine the consequences of lacking salvation to be eternally significant, involving everything from annihilation to eternal torment. Once again, very few accept universalism of any kind. Put simply, the stakes couldn't be higher. According to the vast majority of theists, an unmatched catastrophe will result from lacking salvation. That's terrifying enough, but worse is that theists do not agree on what's necessary for salvation. So most agree that salvation is necessary to avoid terrible catastrophe, but they do not agree, minor detail, on how to get salvation. This kind of soteriological confusion is a matter of course on naturalism. On naturalism, religion is a natural phenomenon, and your religious beliefs are in large part determined by your geography, your familial and peer groups, and your immediate cultural surroundings. It needs to be emphasized that this is not like other disagreements. We disagree over all sorts of issues on how the world works, but typically there's no omniscient person who's trying to communicate to us the right answer. On the other hand, God is a personal being who is trying to communicate to us the right answer to soteriological questions, and yet he's evidently failing to do so. Despite the best efforts of an omnipotent being who has our best interests at heart, we're beset with discord on an issue of infinite significance. I frankly find this impossible to believe. Nearly every attempted explanation devolved into incoherence. To make matters worse, untold millions of human beings, some of them children, have been the victims of psychological terrorism that arises out of this soteriological fog. Naturalists, of course, have no difficulty explaining this kind of discord. It would be very surprising if every religion somehow landed on the same answer about salvation. Actually, it would be evidence for theism if the world's religions and denominations converged where it really mattered. Soteriological harmony would be good evidence for theism. This is not the world we see. On the naturalist view, theists disagree about important religious questions for the same reasons that people wear different kinds of clothes and speak different languages. Geography, familial groups, peer groups, cultural surroundings, and so on. Theists, on the other hand, have to believe that God is trying to tell us the right answer, yet somehow the answer is unclear. God could have communicated in such a way that there is no ambiguity or designed our minds such that we naturally intuit the right answer. And since he desires what's best for us, he has reason to dispel confusion on this matter of unmatched importance. Clearly, the observation of soteriological confusion is evidence favoring naturalism over theism. All right. So there's a lot here with um, soteriology. Yeah. Like, where do you want to take this, Tim? Well, first, I want to um, do some ground clearing and some housekeeping on basically um, how we should really approach this methodologically. So mm -hmm. 
since I, I prepared a slide presentation here, I'll try to explain it the best I can for those who would be listening in on like Spotify or something like that. Mm -hmm. Do you mean um, yeah. And um, the, um, cause I, I, I think that this is fundamental. We've got to start with the basics for how basically um, theism does yield its predictions, how naturalism yields its predictions and how basically um, how do we view like, like how does theism actually become disconfirmed um, and the, on, when we're doing these rival theories comparison. So first of all, basically theism leads us to expect data in two ways, in terms of God's ontology and in terms of axiology. What this means is that, this is what Swinburne said, which is that uh, theism makes predictions in terms of the nature of the God posited, right? And um, that's a really good way, straightforward way to understand this, right? We look at the properties of God, right? We look at God's ontology. And then what we're able to do is given this adductive met methodology is we're able to go out into the world and look at our observations and we're able to say, okay, are, is there anything, any features of the world that resemble or are relevantly like the ontology of God? And are we able to, you know, have that be what these things are rooted in, right? Are we able to trace this back in such a way where God's ontology makes sense of the features of the world? And so if that's so, then theism does lead us to expect data that we would observe in the world. And then two, in terms of axiology, what that means is that um, theism precludes that God will do any bad action since God is a holy good being. And since God is a holy good being, God is solely motivated to act based on the degree of value or, the, or his actions are proportionate to the values that could be realized by that action. So God's motivations are in terms of value. And so when we try to say anything about what God would do or what God has created, we need to look at the value such a state of affairs has. And so these axiological connections are always expected on theism, but these things are not always expected on naturalism, right? And so whenever we are able to take some feature of the world that is that we consider to be good, then we are able to trace it back to the to the to something that is wholly good, which is God, right? God is goodness, and then we observe goodness. And so that's a connection that we can make. And that's always expected on theism. So Theism provides us with this axiological framework. We can map the properties of God to the properties of states of affairs. Um, and this is kind of a theoretical property mapping exercise. And so you can do this exercise, right? I mean, go out, right? If you find beauty, right, in the world, and, and you are persuaded that, you know, every human experience is beauty. Um, beauty is a great thing, right? Um, works of arts are good and highly valuable things. And so you just were able to identify a reason for why God be motivated to bring a world about that brings about um, these reactions of beauty and things of that sort, things that make us look in awe and things, right? Because these are good things. And so I use it, I use this example here that the existence of moral communities is just um, an absolutely obvious one, right? The fact that there are these creatures that are not only just that not only are moral agents, but they're finite, which is they're able to choose to do wrong, but they choose to do good and they choose to do things like build hospitals, uh, advance medicine research, um, uh, look for cures for cancer and to wipe out diseases, right? Because we care about our fellow man, so to say. Um, that's a very good thing. The fact that we can exercise a significant moral freedom and, and develop these moral communities is an incredibly good thing. And so because it's an incredibly good thing, we can say that God will be motivated to bring it about.
So what confirms theism is our ability to draw these links. We can link the properties of goodness in the world to the properties of goodness in God. So prima facie theism will have a greater proportion of the axiological outcome space than naturalism. All that to say is that the outcome space is just the total set of outcomes uh, from a given proposition, right? So um, when you look at a coin toss, right, you can look at that there, there's going to be a total set of outcomes that can happen in a given coin toss, right? 0.5 probability heads, 0.5 probability tails. So example here, I use some evidence E given naturalism uh, over some evidence E given theism, right? So this is the likelihood ratio we'd get. I just use an arbitrary number, one third. And since the, uh, since the likelihood ratio here is bottom heavy, this would favor theism given whatever theism would have the greater proportion of the outcome space given whatever this evidence is. And so that's how that would work, right? So since this equation is bottom heavy, it favors theism over naturalism. Even though naturalism would have a kind of portion of the outcome space, theism has the greater portion of the outcome space, therefore it, it confirms theism. So we can let E be some value state, let E star be some disvalue state, N be naturalism, T be theism. And basically what this looks like is that the likelihood of observing a value state on theism is greater than the likelihood of observing value state on naturalism, prima facie. Likelihood of, conversely, a likelihood of, of observing some disvalue state given theism is less than the probability of observing the likelihood of a um, disvalue state on naturalism. So um, naturalism disconfirms theism by trying to draw out that there are certain connections that we cannot make. Right? There are certain things in the world that do not trace themselves back to God, such as uh, disvaluable states. And obviously, a, 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 an obvious one would be evil. So this is how naturalism and theism yield their respective predictions. The reason why I wanted to go over this is that so we can understand what is Emerson doing here. And if Emerson is actually making mistakes here, we can come back to this. Because if we keep this in mind, this is what's going to determine and allow us to have the lens through which we see if theism is truly being disconfirmed here. So we can move on to soteriological confusion here. So the datum here is just some kind of disvaluable state of affairs, right? It's this assumption that theism, it's a great good that there be soteriological harmony, but there's a great bad here that so many people of a theistic persuasion do not even agree on how to either reach God or how to have union with God. But the question here is that for us to be able to screen off the disconfirmatory power or even actually reverse it and undercut it completely to have a confirmation, we have to see, are there any goods that can be derived from soteriological confusion, right? It, that, that there is an epistemic veil, right, that some people may have when it comes to um, achieving salvation. And so the first thing I want to say is that, you know, when it comes to at least Western monotheism, especially in the Christian tradition, you have Catholicism, Orthodox, and Protestantism, and they all agree on what's necessary for salvation. But what they don't agree on is, um, is the secondary details of who has salvation, um, uh, you know, we'll all have salvation, right? Or only a few people have salvation, things of that sort. So because you have Calvinism, you have Arminians, you have Universalists, you have all these different people, right? But they do, for the most part, I would say, agree on what is necessary for salvation. Um, but there are also other theists who are not within the Christian tradition, um, um, such as um, uh, Muslims and um, and people who are uh, who are Jewish and Mormons and others, right, 
who would, mm-hmm. or the LDS they prefer to be called, um, who disagree, right? But I mean, all that all we really have to do is are, are there actually any goods that we can actually identify in the fact that there is that salvation is not the clearest thing that we can possibly observe in the world? And I think that I can I can name I can name some. So here we have I wrote down alethic discovery, moral and spiritual development, cooperation, the highest manifestations of love, etc. I think that this is what comes when there is um, when things aren't obvious about these things, right? I mean, alethic discovery, that just that just relates to truth, right? I mean, this is what sends you on a truth-seeking adventure is that if you want to know how to reach be in union with God. Well, there's a lot of aspects of the world you're gonna you're gonna discover in that in that time. I mean, we can read some of the highest spiritual people of uh, of of non-Christian uh, religions have um have deeply discovered truths that they wouldn't have otherwise. Um, they have developed morally and spiritually. You cooperate with other people, right, in you know the endeavor to reach union with God, right? The highest manifestations of love, right? You know, in the goal of wanting others to achieve salvation, um, we go out of our way to to tell them about it because we care about their souls, things of that sort. And so I think that something like universalism or even like a strong pluralism like of John Hick, you know, would provide the best redemptive option for these things, right? And um, just because some people are confused about it doesn't mean that this isn't itself true in the end. And so I think what cares about is that is there an, is there an eschatological um, destiny for those who are confused? And so I think that there is one, which is that all persons will be reconciled to the infinite. Um, so that's that's that on soteriological confusion. Zach, what do you uh, what do you have? Yeah, I mean, I think that I think this is good. Um, and the question is really like the, one of the things I was thinking about is. Um, I mean, there's different moves you can make, like Emerson had a conversation. We talked about like C.S. Lewis and the last battle. Um, you could say like sociological confusion um, isn't necessarily going to like be the like the end all be all. Um, but the one thing I was thinking about just like, and this is going to come up again and again and again, is you have to just like keep these big views in mind. Um, so like we could question like, um, like how much do you have to load into your priors almost to, to, to have this idea of like this, like being conformatory evidence of like naturalism, atheism over theism. Um so one example that I literally wrote up as I was thinking about this was um, like, say I lose my keys and the explanation of me losing them is there's, there's two different ideas I have. Um, one is that I just lost my keys. They, they just, they're gone. Um, da, da, da. But the other explanation is there's a, like a magic ghost key thief. And surprisingly, his name is Emerson Green, who stole my keys when I wasn't looking. Um, obviously, if you ask like you, Tim, which one's more plausible, you're going to say the first. And like, why is it the first? Well, it's because it's a much more like... Um, likely theory like looking at like prior probability of different things um than like presupposing like a magic ghost key thief um is and all what i'm saying like the point of this is saying that like um to get to like the second claim like it may like explain the data well but you have to front load a bunch of things like the existence of like magic key stealing fairies named emerson green um whereas the other like the first theory of me the keys just me just losing them doesn't have to do that so all i have to say is like similar like the atheistic arguments you also have to keep in mind um not directly related to this datum one, um, but I think you have to remember just like how much is the, are they gonna have to build in to really like build a theory that's similar to like the theistic theory. So that's my big thing I want to say. Um, obviously, you know, and Emerson brings this up. Of course, like he's he's not saying like oh like well like the theist can't explain soteriological confusion. Um, it's just better explained by naturalism. So that's the one thing I want to say is like hey, um, sure you could grant everything Emerson's saying, but the question would then become like well how much evidence is this really gonna push us towards like atheism so that's what i have to yeah. say that makes sense. also at the same time i i really like that because i want to add on that you know um you know if we if we approach this from 
you know, the, from our fundamentals of Bayesian epistemology, we can understand that we are allowed to update our priors. And what I mean by that is we might have some prior knowledge or prior information before we approach the scene of the evidence about what certain theories would, would lead us to expect. So for him, he's telling us, well, these theories would lead us to expect, theism would lead us to expect that if salvation is of importance, a great degree of importance, right, because it concerns our future, the futures of our souls, then there should be soteriological harmony. Um, and so therefore, we look, observe the evidence um, that this confirms theism, and therefore, it's evidence for naturalism. It's not necessarily saying that this is a substantial prediction on naturalism. Rather, it's just saying that since naturalism isn't against these states of affairs, but theism is, then it counts as evidence for naturalism and counts because it counts against evidence for theism. But the thing is, we're allowed to update our priors. So what if I, because Bayesianism is a subset of learning theory. When I go, I go out into the world and I learn what soteriological confusion actually gives us many, many great goods, then I can update my priors and I can say, well, actually, um, I've learned that there are many great goods that actually occur um, with a veil of ignorance um, or it not being supremely obvious of, um, um, to everybody about how to achieve salvation. Uh, and so if that's the case, then we can update and we can say, well, actually, um, you know, since God's a being that will is motivated to bring about great goods, then here are some great goods. Um, and so we can screen off the disconfirmatory power there. We can actually even have a confirmation of theism. We can actually kind of have a theodicy almost because he does bring up about the kind of evils or bads that occur from people who, you know, have um, are victims of um, the psychological kind of harm that comes with um, some of these things, right? So that's 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 also a way that the theist can respond there, um, which I think is perfectly um, um, justified because um, we need to be able we need to follow our methodology consistently. We're allowed to update. So uh, yeah, we can move on to the second datum. Second divine hiddenness. God's existence is not apparent to many millions of people, even those who are open to having a relationship with God. They simply find themselves not believing involuntarily through no fault of their own. We can call this the phenomenon of reasonable non-belief. And if you think there aren't any reasonable non-believers, then you need to get out more. So what best explains this fact of rational non-belief in God? Here, we're trying to decide which model best explains the data, as in which does a better job of predicting our observations with the fewest assumptions. It's clear that if our observations are entailed by one model, but not a rival model, then it follows that we have evidence favoring the first model over its rival, since the first assigns a higher probability to our observation than the second. So think about God's obscurity. If naturalism is true, there is no great mystery here. God seems hidden because God doesn't exist. So of course, God's existence is not apparent even to many who are open to a relationship with God, and even who, and even those who desire to be in a relationship, uh, even those who desire to be in a relationship with God. Comparatively, theists have less reason to expect our observations, since if God exists, it's not a given that His existence would be obscured from from human beings with whom He desires a relationship. Genuine divine appearance is incompatible with naturalism, but not on theism. So however likely we are to observe hiddenness in a theistic world, the odds are not as high as they are in a naturalistic world. While theists have a somewhat difficult time puzzling over God's hiddenness, naturalists have no hoops to jump through. We have a very straightforward explanation of divine hiddenness. I'm muted and you're muted. I asked what your take was, um, but apparently <laughs> you're muted. So yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. So prima facie, basically saying is that God's obscurity in the world is evidence for naturalism over theism because what he's basically saying is that it's not a given 
that uh, there would be this kind of hiddenness on theism. So therefore, theism is actually leading us to expect something different. Theism is leading us to expect something that, you know, uh, uh, J.L. Schellenberg is trying to sh say, which is that God will do what, because of his perfect lovingness, and because he's analogous to a loving parent, that God will do whatever is necessary to make sure that he's in a relationship with all creatures. The interesting thing is that his argument actually kind of has a hidden has a hidden assumption that he's debated back and forth with people like Ted Poston, Trent Doherty, and others, which is that he's kind of making this diachronic um, um, argument as well, which is saying that um, because I think as theists we would agree um, that um, that there won't always be hiddenness, but what what somebody like Schellenberg wants to say is that no 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 that's still bad. What he's what he wants to say is that at any point in time, at any time T, where there are sentient creatures um, who are able to who have the faculties to have a relationship with God, they will God will make sure that they do. And that's an assumption. And that's an axiological assumption. And I don't think all theists have to share that axiology. So going back to our basics here that I provided in the beginning of the presentation. What goods can be identified? Theism leads us to expect that there are value states. What value states can be identified in the existence of reasonable non-believers? Well, I think that reasonable non-believers provide great value to the world. And this is what someone, someone like Swinburne says. Um, very greatly informed and rational atheists actually help um, people of faith think through their faith in a much more serious and rigorous manner than they might not have in the absence of reasonable non-believers, right? And so this is one reason why God would permit that from happening, that God would God would not do whatever is necessary at all points in time to make sure that they are in a relationship with him. This is just one among many, many, many reasons, but I think that that all it goes to show is that there are some reasons that we can identify. And so going back to kind of what I was saying earlier, there is this diachronic problem, which is that we have the universe here, like my little diagram, um, we have the, we have a universe here and this is the beginning of the universe's history. Uh, and this is our axis of time and the universe is still progressing forward. We often, and this is some, this is what theologian John Hout has said when he points his points out an understanding that we need to think about the universe kind of having an awakening, right? We think about the universe having here a 13.8 billion year history. And we kind of look back at things in the past or in the present, but there's still so much more the universe has for us in store. And given a theistic commitment, um, the universe isn't done um, uh, done uh, approaching perfection. It's almost in a sense being called by God, right? And so in this stage of our earthly existence, right, I just put here that let's just say this is how long, like the 4 billion years, you know, the earth has been here, right, with and things and you know we're in this privileged space right um diachronically we observe people we observe reasonable non-believers right we observe a kind of divine silence right but that has nothing to say about whether the about the, the universe's history you know the eschatological destiny of the universe will actually include what we observe in our earthly existence now well, well, reasonable non-believers always exist. And, and that's where atheists and theists are going to have to disagree is that atheists and theists will say something like Ben Watkins would say, well, why not just, what's the point of having some now? And then, you know, having not any later, right? Why not just have them, you know, reasonable non-believers now? Why not just have a one in relationship with God now? Um, 
And that's an argument that, that, that they can make, but that's also one that assumes a particular axiology, one um, that Schellenberg is also employing. But the theist isn't necessarily, uh, has to be committed to employing the same kind. We might say that there is, you know, great value in, you know, the struggle in the religious life and being committed to the religious life and being committed to knowing God in the absence of God's, you know, being so obvious to us. But eventually God will remove the veil of ignorance um, in the future. And we will have this kind of experiential knowledge of what it's like to kind of struggle in this world of really trying to get to know God. Because in a world where the veil of ignorance has always been removed, there was never a veil of ignorance to begin with we will not have the kind of character that was built out of having to struggle so hard. So those are just some things about divine hiddenness that um, when we really think about it and we are allowed to update, given what we understand on theism, um, it, um, I think it, I think it uh, can provide a rebutting and undercutting defeater for the argument. Um, and ultimately I think that when we, there's deeper things we can say about divine hiddenness, such as like, what does it truly mean right now in our imperfected state of the world to have a relationship with God? Um, you know, is the gathering of saints a way we have a relationship with God, right? Is it through a collective relationship with believers and other people is which we're able to reach God, right? And eventually we'll be able to have that everlasting union with God. Things of that sort, right? So, I mean, theism isn't, you know, um, explanatorily lacking here. And I don't think that we have to really take a hit on our uh priors to be able to um to have such reasoning right um mm -hmm. so if this is a subset of the best possible kind of world then god has satisfied his obligation in instantiating it and um so it's unsurprising that this would be the way things are but anyways um mm. what do you want to say i mean i just like looking at your diagram because to help me think about like um, like if we're going to argue divine hiddenness is evidence against theism, what we have to do is consider like, well, where are we like given like this moment in 2022 of um, September 4th that we're talking right now to him, like, um, what are we coming from? Like, is God becoming like more or less hidden over time? If that's even the thing to say, um, you can talk about like even further, like going into like cosmic history and like evolution and things like this, trying to think about like where humans are coming from and how that's progressing towards like where we're going Um and all of this has to be considered for it to be like evidence against theism. And if you can have a good like um, account of these things, showing that it's like this is like some sort of like like you talked about Tim, um, the best possible kind of world, then it's not going to be much, if any, evidence against theism actually, because this divine hiddenness would be kind of expected on um, that kind of view. So yeah, I think that's great. Yeah. All right, let's dive into this next clip. Um, and here we go. Third evolution. Life is a product of evolutionary forces, not special creation or intelligent design. On naturalism, there is virtually no other serious contender explaining how humans came about other than evolution by natural processes. It's the only game in town for naturalism. But on theism, God has options. Evolution isn't beforehand a sure bet. God could have used evolution to create life, and some theists believe he did, but he also could have used other methods, methods which are all but impossible on naturalism. So the fact that humans and all life came about through evolution is not surprising on naturalism. There's not really any plausible alternative. For theists, on the other hand, evolution may or may not be true. And in fact, I don't know if you've heard about this, many theists don't accept evolution. It just so happens that the option that turns out to be true is pretty much the only one that could have been true on naturalism. In other words, the odds of evolution are diminished on theism relative to naturalism simply as a matter of probability. There's a smaller number of options under naturalism than on theism. 
And I'd also like to briefly draw attention to something a bit more intangible. Evolution seems to make for a more comfortable fit with naturalism than it does with theism. Why else would the majority of believers continue to reject theistic evolution? Why else would intelligent design and special creation enduringly claim the lion's share of Christian believers, even many generations after the discovery of evolution by natural selection? Because evolution is an insult to human vanity and doesn't fit neatly with the flattering Christian image of ourselves. Fourth. All right. So where do you want to take this, Tim? Okay, so before I even get into my slide, I want to address that last point. You know, it, it, it's it's um, you know, Christianity just isn't Protestantism, right? It's Orthodox, it's Eastern Orthodox, it's the Orthodox Church and the Catholic Church, and the Catholic Church, um, is completely in line with contemporary evolutionary theory. Um, so. To say that the majority of Christians have a problem because of, you know, they truly do deep in their heart see a perceived problem, I don't really think it, I think that's overstating the case. Mm -hmm. I I um I think that you know in even in modern evangelicalism there's this kind of idea that like nobody really you know there are certain people that are like I'm creating God's image which means that like you know. I don't share any ancestry with any other kind of species, right? You know, and stuff like that. And and and, and that is a niche group of people, right? That think that way. Um, there are people that think that way, you know. Um, but also at the same time, I think we need to be more nuanced, which is like not every, I mean, a lot of the intelligent design theorists um, and, and people who are anti-Darwin, um, you know, actually are the way that they are because they truly do think that there is a deficit in explanation in that kind of theory. Um, mm -hmm. they, they, they were persuaded that way, um, because of that. And I think that ultimately there are just, you know, it's, it, we have to do a lot of psychologizing almost here. Right. It's like, why are certain people attracted to certain views? Right. You know, why do fundamentalists tend to be Protestant? You know, and like you start to get into these, in, in, into these kind of questions. And I just don't really think it really does justice to why certain people either don't accept fully the evolutionary theory. I think most intelligent design theorists are, you know, do hold to a common descent. They just think that certain things like maybe certain radiation events or like the first cell requires um, supernatural agency, something like mm -hmm. that. Um, I just don't, I'm just not convinced by his claim that um, it's because they have, they see this perceived kind of, you know, problem with evolution on theism. This is the reason why they have to kind of, you know, mess around with it more than they should so yeah. anyway i want to get that out of the way i don't know what, I mean, what do you think uh what do you what do you make your thoughts on that i mean i think i think you're right i mean you know obviously um we're a product of like like our background like if you grew up in a like a cult, or like a christian sphere where everyone rejects evolution then you kind of make those claims but you have to consider like the global um scheme of christian of christendom so yeah we're on the same page as you yeah okay so going on to my slide for datum three evolution uh this is actually one of my favorites um because I think that there is a great response to this. And this will be actually the first time I've ever shared this response online. So it's first done here. So congratulations, Zach. We're yeah. doing it. Um, so this is this is the rough sketch of the argument. This is actually taken from Draper. Uh, Emerson's getting his argument from Draper. I forget. He wrote in a 2015 paper, like natural selection and theism or something like that. I forget. Excuse me. So basically what he argues is that there are two logically exhaustive options for how entities obtain in, in the world. Either they come about through evolution or either they can come about through special creation, call it divine fiat if you want. Well, 
It is antecedently improbable, given naturalism, that the universe and its contents came about through special creation. But not on theism. What is that? What that is saying is that on naturalism, there's only one option that naturalists have, because since special creation requires supernatural, and naturalism is obviously not supernaturalism, then they only have one option, which is evolution. So evolution is evidence for naturalism over theism, since evolution is the only option naturalism has, whereas theism has both options. So thus, a probability of one. Naturalism gets 100% of the evolution outcome space, given it's the only option that they have when we observe evolution. So therefore, it's more likely on naturalism than theism. And there are issues with this, though. It, for one, it just gets the probability calculus wrong. Um, and I want a big shout out to Trent Doherty for being the one that showed me this, um, first showed me this. I did not come up with this by myself. I want to fully give credit to him for that, but I understand it enough to be able to communicate it. So it gets the probability calculus wrong. Let's do a little exercise. Let's say that person X gets a 10% raise while person Y got a 5% raise. The question here is who is being paid more? Who has the higher income? Well, someone may say, well, person X, they got a 10% raise. That's five more than person Y. But you can't really make that judgment without actually knowing what they were making prior to the raise. So mm -hmm. here's, an here's an illustration. Boom. This is what Draper and Emerson is arguing. They're saying that, well, since all the all, only thing that, uh, that can happen on naturalism is that there's evolution all the time, 100%. Boom. Shade that in. But on theism, you can have 50% evolutionist, which is 50% special creation. Given that programmatic assumption, we'll just give that to them. You know, we don't have to accept that, but this is the way they're framing the argument. But again, the problem here is that who actually gets, which theory actually gets the greater proportion of the outcome space? Well, we need to know what the outcome space actually is. So let's look at that. What the correct calculus should be is this. Take any... Um, uh, axiological precondition that theism has as its evidence, such as an orderly complex universe. And let's just look at the orderly complex universe outcome space. Why? Because an orderly complex universe is a precondition for evolution and special creation. But yeah, it's mainly a precondition for evolution since so we're focusing on that. This is what it really looks like, is that you have the entire outcome, uh, orderly complex universe outcome space in regards to evolution and special creation. But since theism has an orderly complex universe as its evidence, and since its evidence is a precondition for evolution, therefore theism will get the greater proportion of evolution than naturalism will. Naturalism will get a sliver of it because that's all it can have. But since its evolution is within the orderly, universe, uh, orderly complex universe outcome space, theism will get the greater proportion of it since it has this as its evidence. So this is actually what's going on here. You have to, you cannot just look at things by themselves. You have to look at it in terms of the outcome space. This is how proper Bayesianism is done. So I just want to leave that pause this here for a second. Zach, do you understand 
what's going on here by uh, by what's being shown by this diagram. I think so. I um, yeah. I mean, I think I think I understand what's happening here. So we're looking at it, um, and we're thinking about like the question of like, well, we're, are we gonna have an orderly complex um, universe? And theism's gonna do a lot better job explaining that than naturalism. So when we get to the data of evolution, um, you have to consider like that has to be in your account before you can even consider the data of evolution. Is it, am I tracking with you? Yeah. Um, that's basically how we should be thinking about it. And since an orderly complex universe has an outcome space, right? I mean, what are all the things that have resulted from there being in the orderly complex universe, right? We have evolution and given theism, we would have evolution and also, you know, we can throw in special creation events, right? Mm -hmm. um, but since we but since we do say that this precondition is evidence for theism, then if it's evidence for theism, then theism has to have the greater proportion of this, the naturalism. So naturalism can have evolution, but it's going to just have a small sliver of it. It doesn't mean that it's going to have the whole thing because it had the whole thing. Then this couldn't be evidence for theism, but it is. So basically going back to our earlier example of the person with the rays, right? Well, what if the person who got the 5% raise was making 100K a year, but the person with the 10% raise was only making 30? That's the problem that's, that, that um, is with Emerson's argument, which is the naturalist is the, naturalist is the person with a 10% raise. They're saying, hey, listen, I have a higher raise than you. Evolution all the time. Boom, 100%. But the theist goes, yeah, but I make more money than you. Mm -hmm. So the theist is going, yeah, but... I have the majority of the orderly complex universe outcome space and you don't. So you can have your 30 K or how much ever you made from that, but I'm going to have the rest of the pie. Right. Mm -hmm. It's like, think about it, about us equally having us mutually having access to the pie. Well, if I get a 10% rate, if I get a 5% raise on a hundred thousand, then I'm going to have more access to the pie than you. And this is basically what that looks like. So therefore actually it is not, evidence for naturalism over theism. It's actually the other way around. So mm -hmm. um, basically you have, we have to think about it in terms of a ratio, right? Like I pointed out in the beginning, one third. The numer naturalism is gonna have one in its numerator, but we're gonna have three in our denominator and we're gonna have a bottom heavy equation. Mm -hmm. So anyway, that's how that works. And that's the problem with that argument. Um, mm -hmm. So um, yeah. Anyway, does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, I think I think it made sense. I mean, you go back and just like think through this again. Um, but I, th I think the diagram is super helpful, at least for me. Like, I look at the diagram, I'm like, oh, okay, I know what you're saying. Um, so I had a lot of fun actually making the diagrams. Just gonna be honest <laughs> with everybody, I that was actually pretty fun. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I love a good visual diagram when it comes to philosophy. Okay, um, well, we can move on to um, was it evolutionary animal suffering? Yep, exactly. You got it. All right, let's get. Let's go to see what's next. Uh, animal suffering and evolutionary history. So if there's an additional reason evolution is surprising on theism relative to naturalism, a far more important reason. For hundreds of millions of years, an unimaginable amount of predation, carnivory, starvation, parasitism, languishing, death, fear, and pain has taken place on Earth. This is due entirely to God's choice to bring about his creation through the pitiless process of evolution. This is the way a perfect being brings about his creation. He could have created the biological world in many different ways, including ways in which many millions of Christians already believe he did, without hundreds of millions of years of animal suffering that could have been avoided entirely. 
it's truly hard to exaggerate the staggering amount of suffering endured by sentient creatures over the generations of evolutionary history, most of which were non-rational, non-moral agents. This is more than just a little surprising on the hypothesis that an omnipotent, perfectly loving, and moral being is responsible for the natural world. All right, so what do you want to say here, Tim? Ah, so this is that of evolutionary suffering. Um, mm. This is particularly one of uh, uh, something that I've been well, well studied on. Um, something I, that is very um, recent in my studies. So this is something that I understand. I'd say you know pretty well. Um, I have a good grasp on this, and basically, we want to get the data right. Right, we don't want to downplay the argument for from evolutionary animal suffering. Right, mm -hmm. um, you know, just as atheists will, a lot of atheists online will downplay the fine tuning argument, but will upplay evil. We don't want to do that. We want to be consistent across the board. So, um, basically, the datum is this is how I understand the datum of evolutionary animal suffering. It's a kind of a story, right? There has been a profusion of animal suffering over the multi-billion year process of biological evolution on Earth. In the course of this process, harsh conditions such as competition and predation are required for the proliferation of many species. Our natural history has shown us that there have been multiple mass extinction events, which have been documented as key drivers of evolution in the past. Moreover, many of the adaptive structures evolution has produced are solely for harming solely for the harming of other creatures. For example, the executor wasp um, with its, um, I think it has, in terms of a wasp species, has like the worst venom um, mm -hmm. out of, um, and so that's just mainly there to harm creatures. So the naturalist is saying here, well, God could have easily chosen a more straightforward path in achieving diversity in the biosphere and at the same time prevent any of the many evils that could have occurred, you know, um, God could have, um, you know, made things where the environment only allows us to give rise to structures that um, are more in harmony with other creatures or things of that sort, right? Mm -hmm. Why does biological evolution kind of have this kind of evil natural law in place where certain creatures to survive have to take out other creatures? But so then the question becomes this. Now that we have the datum taken seriously, fully in place, is the theist able to screen off the disconfirmatory power of evolutionary animal suffering? And so when it comes to a criteria of success for theodicy, giving an explanation of evil, I take Trent Dory's criterion, which is this. We must be able to tell a plausible and constant, consonant narrative um, on theism that is able to screen off the, the disconfirmatory power of the argument from evil. Um, and so the more probable the theodicy is, the greater it can do that. Mm. And so what we're looking for here is an undercutting defeater. Mm. And so now the question is, does the theist really have one? Um, so if you want me to continue on, I can, but yeah, keep going. Okay. So the data of evolutionary animal suffering is more, is what's being said here, is more prima facie epistemically friendly towards indifference. It's not that it's being substantially predicted by naturalism. It's just that naturalism isn't against it, whereas mm -hmm. theism seems to be against it. Um, 
I understand indifference to be that there are no normative constraints on value, disvalue distributions. And so it leaves the outcome up to chance. There are absolutely no selective selection pressures on the range of worlds that will come about. Just unadulterated metaphysical chance. So all the theist has to do is just provide a constant and plausible narrative that is probable on theism to screen off with this confirmatory power. Um, and so some might say, that, say that's a big task, but again, a intentional being will always do better than chance. And so if we can do better than chance, we're in a really good spot. Um, and so um, I think that we can do better than chance. So want me to keep going? Yeah. So just, just to track with you, Tim, what you're saying is like um, for theism to better explain this data, what we need is something that's like a better explanation than like indifferent chance. Is that, is that what you're trying to get at here? Yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah, exactly. So all, all we need to be able to do is when it, when we look at um, the distribution um, within the, the, the course of our natural history of suffering, all we need to be able to do is show that um that what has occurred, that there are certain goods that God would aim at um, that have occurred through this process. Um, and, and that is something that God can always achieve because he's all powerful. Okay. But it's something that could not have been achieved on naturalism, given that it leaves it up to chance. Mm -hmm. So is there a distribution that can be expected on theism? Um, within the course of our evolutionary history um, that would be very surprising on naturalism. So all we need to do is provide a reason. We can even provide a partial reason. All we have to do is provide a reason. But I think that given um, how I look at theodicy, that we can truly um, screen off the disconfirmatory power here, not only just through looking at the goods, that have occurred and the values that have occurred, but fully justify it through having a defeat enhanced view of theodicy. Mm -hmm. So um, I'll just keep going. So let S represent a theodical narrative about evolutionary animal suffering. S is this, all animals who are victims of evolutionary suffering will be resurrected and deified to compensate and defeat their suffering to endorse the life they live. Oh, I probably typed this out. I typed this out late last night, so forgive the typo. Um, mm -hmm. They lived in the context of the drama of creation. So that's the um, theodical narrative we're telling. So the question is, how does how someone might ask, well, how does this not reduce the pro the probability of theism, right? Wouldn't this take a take a hit to our priors, right? Because it seems as though we would have to build this entire story in the theism for it to work, right? But mm -hmm. that is not true. What we're doing here is we're thinking about it this, God will always do the best loving action. Thus, the best action in this case will be to resurrect and deify animals for compensation and defeat. Now this is an assumption. Someone could disagree with my assumption here on axiology, but that's not a dispute about God. That's a dispute about axiology. And so okay. we're still fine here. As long as my assumption goes through, which I think I, I can defend my assumption, but I don't really need to. It's not required. 
because it's consistent with an axiological framework. Um, then if God will always do a best loving action, if X is a best loving action, then God will do it. And I think the best loving action for the victim's evolutionary suffering is to resurrect and deify them so that they can mm -hmm. compensate and defeat their own sufferings. So what we have here is um, T implies S, which entails that T is logically equivalent to T and S. What that means mm -hmm. is that theism implies the theological story I'm telling here. And that just entails that theism is identical to theism in conjunction with S. And if that's the case, then there is no loss in probability since theism, is, since theism is would then be logically equivalent to mm. the theory in conjunction with the story. Because mm. God will do the best loving action, the probability of one that God will do the best loving action. So this then successfully screams off the disconfirmatory power without a loss in probability. Now, the question becomes, we can ask is, well, there's just so much horrendous suffering in the process and things of that sort. That's true. I am going with a normative constraint on mm -hmm. what is considered justified and unjustified on theism. I take uh, a Chisolmian and, and, and approach from Adams when it comes to um, value holes. I think that God is justified in authorizing evils if they are defeasible. What it mm -hmm. means is that if these evils can end up being integrated into an individual's life such that it contributes to that individual's life being good on the whole, such that they endorse the life they lived, not in spite of the evil, but through it. Yeah. Um, and I think that all the evils that we have observed in the world are those kinds that if a creature allows themselves to, um, integrate the evils into their lives, then they will defeat it. And defeat mm -hmm. is just, it is, it is a screening off relation. It screens off the hold that an evil has on a creature. When we, for example, heal our trauma, we are basically swallowing the negative impact it had on us and no longer has a negative impact on us and so this is a kind of a defeat augmented response to animal evolutionary suffering and since i can tell since this story um can go through without any loss in prior probability then then the job has been done that we have six we can we have successfully screened off this disconfirmatory power without loss in probability um, mm -hmm. and I think that ultimately we can also kind of have, when it comes to talking about the distribution of evil here, um, someone may ask, well, then it seems as though still that God could have created a more tame world than the one we observe. So, um, there's this really good paper by, um, Trent Doherty actually, and Zach, I can send it to you if you want to read it. It's a kind of yeah. obscure. I had to find it. I found it mm -hmm. in a footnote and I had to just go look for it. It's called a quasi-Leibnizian theodicy. Okay. The best, uh, the subset of the best possible kind of world. And so what it is, is it's Leibnizian in the sense that God still creates a best, but it's quasi-Leibnizian in the sense that it's a subset of a best possible kind of world. 
And mm-hmm. so what God wants to do is he wants to make sure that his worlds are sufficiently good on the whole. Um, and that's going to be really determined by the values realized in that world. Um, and so all God has to do is create a token of the type best possible kind. And that's a subset of that. And these tokens are allowed to be incommensurable with one another. There is no restriction on that. They can be incomparably valuable to one another. So God kind of just through a chancy process of just mental toss up, he can choose what token world um, will realize the best possible kind of world, a member of that. Right. And Mm -hmm. so this gets into what Trent utilizes in that paper is Peter Van Ingwagen's disjunctive model of creation which he talks about in his paper, the place of chance in a world sustained by God, where basically what God does is he says, allow these values to be realized, but then he doesn't determine the details of that. He lets the world unfold on its own. He keeps the outcome open-ended on how Mm -hmm. that's going to occur, right? So God may say, let there be embodied moral agents, but he doesn't specify whether or not they're going to be carbon-based. Um, so he creates a token world of the type that will realize embodied moral agents. And that can be done through an evolutionary process. That could have been done through some other kind of process. But that's the kind we observe. And so abductively speaking, we observe a token of the type. Now, the question is, do we actually observe a token of the type? So uh, what we have to ask ourselves is, is our world kind of a crucible for moral, spiritual, um, alethic development, where we're given enough opportunity, opportunities and chances of success to grow through our sufferings and to actually mm-hmm. exemplify some of the highest goods. And I think that theism is able to hit that target uh, and has hit that target. Um, there are many more... Um, saintly exemplifications than there are horrors that have absolutely um prevented people from ever basically living their lives mm-hmm. whereas on naturalism it could have resulted in a world where the distribution of evil is such that there's horrors all the time and people are never able to live their lives or such that the laws of nature don't allow the world to be predictable enough to where we can grow from our suffering or that the world is too pleasurable and there's no chances for discomfort so we can actually grow from our sufferings. Whereas, mm-hmm. the, whereas the world we live in is one where there's significant pain and suffering because this is our preconditions for the best values, such as the highest virtues, love, manifest, love manifesting virtues. And so theism is able to do better than chance in hitting that world. And I think that the best possible kind of world is one that realizes the highest virtues and God just instantiated token of that type. So if you want to ask, well, why is the world so messy in the way that it achieves that? Well, it's because God creates disjunctively. Mm-hmm. He leaves it open-ended. He allows the world to co-create in achieving those ends. And so now someone may ask, well, isn't there too much suffering, right? That if we look at the outskirts, right? if we look at, you know, on the sides of the bell curve, Right. Aren't there horrors that have taken people's lives where they never really were able to develop their character? And what we can ask in that sense is, well, were those evils the type that if the process plays out long enough, that person will be able to grow morally, alethically, spiritually in those ways? 
And there's a lot of literature and there's a lot of biographies. And there's one, there's a book I like, it's um, called uh, A Grace Disguised, basically how horrific, it's basically a book on how horrific suffering can actually make your life better. And it's a guy who basically lost his entire family like that in a car crash, kids and wife, um, mm. didn't know how to, to live on, but he wrote a book on how that was actually a grace disguised. Our world produces stuff like that all the time. You, you just have to read about it. Um, so I think that, um, that in that sense, then, um, that there, the kinds of evils we observe are such that when the process plays out and, and, and runs its course, that people develop in those great ways. And so our world is a crucible for saintly, uh, uh exemplifications and character, whereas naturalism could have hit on any distribution of evil. Why did it hit on the distribution of evil where, people like that exist that write mm -hmm. about how it's a grace disguised. So I think that um, that's very surprising on naturalism, but not surprising on theism. So I have one more slide. I'm going to let you jump in and give your thoughts. Cause I talked. About yeah. That. I mean, I don't have too much. I want to add just for the sake of like time here. Um, but I, I do think it's like really interesting what you're talking about, Tim. Um, what I've been trying to map is like, I'm trying to think about like, like what Emerson's going to be thinking about as you listen to this. Um, Cause I know what Emerson, I think what he's trying to do is like point out a specific like example of like suffering, um, because it's just like the general course of like evolutionary suffering and saying like all other things being equal, like this suffering is just more likely on atheism than it would be on theism. And the move you're trying to make is like actually like an entailment of theism um, is that there would be some sort of like um, theodicy or some sort of like, um, some sort of like you have your on your slides here a, the, a theodical a the, a the, theodosia whatever that word theodical be theodical narrative um that's kind of like entailed by theism so like that move where we're going to say like this is just like an entailment that there would be this indifferent suffering um you're going to say like in, on your view like well that would be an entailment of theism too so it's not really like either one's really going to have an advantage here um yes yeah exactly because we screened off the disconfirmatory power mm -hmm. this can no longer be evidence for naturalism mm -hmm. Okay. Um, so that's, yeah, that's exactly what's kind of going on there. And yeah. in a sense, the distribution we do observe is actually evidence for theism, since it's a probability of one that God will create the best possible, will, will create a best. And if we live in a token world of the type best possible kind of world, then the probability of one God will create it. Therefore, theism actually predicts the kind of distribution of suffering we observe. Mm -hmm. So in a sense, we can actually not only disconfirm, screen off the disconfirmation, but actually get a confirmation. Some mm -hmm. people don't like that idea, but I think about it. I think if you think about it long enough, um, like for example, there's a woman, Secord, uh, she wrote a, I think she did a dissertation on animal suffering and she uh, responded to Trent at, on, on his fine tuning argument from evil. And she said, well, what about people like, a mother and her starving family who died from starvation. Um, and Trent's response to that is yes, but the process will still play out. Mm -hmm. If let, let's say that they never died from starvation, the process would play out long enough to where they would, that, 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 that gave them significant opportunities and a significant opportunity to be able to grow from the suffering. And then the chance of success is made in the afterlife. So if the suffering is the type that gives you an opportunity to grow from it, then theism has successfully predicted that, that range. Um, we could live in a world where there's just no opportunity to grow from our suffering, but we don't. 
So we kind of live in that Goldilocks zone. Um, so last part is now we can get into partial justifications for evolutionary animal suffering. The reason why I call them partial justifications is that no amount of beauty or aestheticness in the world could ever justify um, the um, the horrendous suffering that a creature or an individual would have occurred to them, especially if that creature ends up forming thoughts like, I wish I was never born, right? Mm-hmm. The world being aesthetic doesn't justify that fully. That's why we need defeat. We need defeat as the normative constraint on what's justified to be in the picture here. If, um, if we, if God can achieve these goods that I have listed here at the cost of there being certain evils, but those evils will be defeated. Then, um, you know, in a sense, God's off the hook, we could say, right. You know, God doesn't look bad in that sense. Yeah. You know, God is completely justified in what he's done. So here are some reasons you might ask, well, then why God, why would God instantiate kind of evolutionary process, right? Or something like that. Given our destructive model of creation, I could say, well, there's a bunch. There's aesthetic, teleological, canonic, ancestral, and last one, Christus Redemptor, which I really like. These are some goods that we can actually derive from the um, from evolutionary suffering. For example, nature as a work of art, the, uh, the kind of beauty found in nature or these, um, you know, evolutionary processes uh, such as you know competition predation and things of that sort is is what john schneider calls tragic beauty um there's a kind of uh sublime um you know uh kind of tragedy happening where there's beauty to be observed but we also can kind of see a sad drama playing out when predation occurs and things of that sort that, that an animal was able to flourish but at the cost of another animal kind of playing out like in a tragic piece of art, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and um, also then you have aesthetic agency, which is that uh, the universe is allowed to, or nature is allowed to develop in multiple beautiful ways. Um, but um, that can also um, occur in many bad states of affairs obtaining. So um, now we have teleological. Right. And this is what I just talked about the distribution intensity of evil that will likely result in saints. Right. You know, people say that, you know, there is more suffering in the animal kingdom than there is in, you know, for humans. And if that's the case, then there is much more opportunity for saintliness in the multi billion year process of evolution for animals than there has been for humans. And so, in a sense, then animals have actually, or have actually been given greater opportunities for saintliness than, than we have. Um, mm-hmm. And given my theodical story, they'll be able to develop that in the afterlife fully. Then we have canonic, the exemplification of self-emptying victims participating in Christ's passion. Kenosis is the doctrine that Christ self-emptied himself on the cross um, so that he could suffer for our sins. And in the same way, um, nature is a cruciform that animals play a role where they suffer so that other animals can exist and live that the proliferation of certain species are at the cost of certain animals existences. Um, but they participate in Christ's passion since Christ participated in all the suffering that he atoned for. And I think that that also includes um, the future uh, deification of animals themselves. And so in a sense, 
this is a great, great uh, value exemplified in the world. The fact that nature is a cruciform and that Christ's passion um, was also uh, of the canonic type. Then ancestral connections. This is from um, Robin Collins, right? The entire web of life is interrelated. And the entire web of life is interrelated and are great goods and lasting goods in the sense that we are in relationship, we have a relationship um, through ancestry to all of life. Um, and then Christus Redemptor, the great good of creatures apprehending the reality of Christ as a benevolent universal redeemer. That if, that if God is to do good by the victims of evolution, then he must be able to redeem also evolution, right? And, and, and Robin Collins also on your podcast talked about that. He said it would look something like instead of there being harsh competition and predation, there would be a redemption to a interrelatedness among creatures, a harmonious cooperation among creatures. And so the real question becomes, when we observe these teleological evils and evolutionary evils, the question is, well, can God redeem it? And the question answer is yes, given that God has infinite resources, then how will God redeem it? And I think that these are some reasons how God will redeem it. He will deify and resurrect creatures so that they can defeat their sufferings and know how God loved them and endorse the lives that they lived. And God will also redeem uh, the harsh conditions of evolution, such as competition and predation, and have that transform into interrelatedness and harmony. And if that's the case, and we can provide a theistic eschatology that doesn't take any probability hits on theism, then we have, dis we have screened off. We have successfully screened off all the discontinuing from retired power of evolutionary animal suffering. And therefore, this is no longer evidence for naturalism. And so I think that these are, uh, this is a strategy. This is an approach that we can take to answering these things. Um, and that, that's, uh, that concludes all my slides and my responses to the uh, four datum that, um, that Emerson uh, presents. But uh, what, do you, what do you make? What do you, what do you think, man? I mean, I think that's great. I mean, we have a little bit more like, um, so your slides are up, right? That's your last slide. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, I, mean, I, I know that Emerson's going to talk about more. Um, he's going to go more into depth into his, um, mm -hmm. into his case, but all the same thing still applies. Yeah. I mean, I think this is good. Um, and for me, what I'm trying to think about as I go through this is thinking about like, where exactly do I lay? Like, what, what am I thinking about like Emerson's arguments? And like, I remember I, I was taking a walk, like even this afternoon, um, just before this thinking about like, um, just everything that we're going to talk about today. And I was thinking about animal suffering and I was just looking outside and I was like, um, it's really beautiful outside today. And I started walking and I was walking down my hill and it started raining and I was like, Oh, this kind of sucks. Like I was, I needed to get my walk in for the day. Um, and I was like, it was getting a little wet. And the reason I remember it's raining because the, the wind started blowing. And when the wind started blowing, all the leaves started coming off the trees. And I was like, this is really beautiful right now. Just seeing the leaves just like fly around in the air from the trees and things like this. Um, and in my mind um, came to animal suffering and I was like, okay, so we have this, like, um, to me, like we have this like extreme beauty, just like you step outside and you just experience um, the beauty of the world that we live in. Um, but then we also have like this reality of like animal suffering. And I was like, so how do we make sense of the two? Uh, and where I was at, at that exact moment, I was like, well, what if we just like, is it like, is it fine to just like have a trade-off in terms of like theism versus atheism arguments? Like say like, Hey, maybe like um, beauty and order is like, a chip in favor of theism and like sufferings the chip in favor of atheism and we just kind of like shake hands and have a good day and move on and look at other data and 
what you're really pressing on, Tim, that I really like is you're trying to look at it and say, hey, um, given theism, we would expect there to be some sort of reason for why there would be all this kind of suffering um, that we'd experience. Like it'd be an entailment of the theistic hypothesis. And then you talked about these different like um, theodicies that you just go through in the slide on David four and say, hey, like there's actually like really good reasons to think about like um, like why these things may not be super unexpected given theism and yeah i mean i think i think that's i think that's kind of where i'm at just thinking through this yeah you know one thing that i by the way great great story i actually really like that you know one one thing that trent told me was we can often make this too complicated and mm -hmm. theists can sometimes get too 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 wound up in 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 these kind of discussions wrongly and he says what it comes down to is this single question can this instance of suffering be redeemed yeah can this creature's life be redeemed now you can ask the question well if it's yes but you still answer ask the question well then why evolution and trent says that's a cool question to ask, but it is not at all necessary to provide a response to suffering. Mm -hmm. um, when you have this particular framework in theodicy, where you want to make sure that, like Marilyn Adams says, that a creature's life can be good on the whole, one that they endorse and know that God loved them, then if God can guarantee that, then it's been redeemed. And the mm -hmm. suffering has been answered. And he says that that cuts through the weeds. Because then what I did here is I just thought about some goods that can occur. But these goods are just all that they say is that it's just to show that God pursues good things. And these are the good things that occur in the evolutionary process. But it's not required to identify all the goods when you can answer the question, can it be redeemed? I mean, think about it, right? It's like, you know, an, an executor, an ex, let's say an executor wasp, wasp uh, kills a cicada beetle or something like that. You know, and, and the beetle suffers from the poison and, and, and it dies and things of that sort. Like, can God redeem that? I think it's obvious, yes. Um, mm -hmm. It didn't go through any existential suffering. It just went through some physical pain. So... I think that in that sense, that can be redeemed. And I think that if we start going through the list, we can start to show, well, these things can be redeemed. Then it's like, okay, well then, if, they're, if they will endorse their lives on the whole freely um, and, and, and know how God loved them, then, um, then God has, 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 uh, has, um, has acted in a way that's sufficiently good. And that's what we expect from God. God will, be, God will act in ways that are sufficiently good. So anyways, I just want to say that for anybody listening, you know, and you're, and you're having the trouble kind of thinking about theodicy, thinking about answering suffering, the, the question at the forefront should be, is this redeemable? If it is, then, 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 then if you can tell a story about how it will be redeemed, then that's what you got to do. And, I think, mm. and, that, and that's pretty much my project there. Mm, that's great. So let's keep going here um, as we start to get close to the end. Not really, but we're on our way. Fifth, teleological evil. Typically, naturalists believe that evolution by natural selection accounts for the design of the biological order, you know, at least the broad strokes. Natural selection can at least help us explain the general shape of the biological order. 
there are other forces at work, but it's not as if there's an unsurpassably great being that had anything to do with evolution on naturalism. And unlike God, natural selection is an impersonal, indifferent, quote unquote, designer. Teleological evil occurs in virtue of the natural purpose of a thing. It is suffering caused by organisms acting in accordance with one or more of their natural purposes or their design plan. The biological order for which God is ultimately responsible features much teleological evil. So to quote Philippe Leon, the problem of teleological evil differs from the problem of dysteleology, and that while the latter appeals to poor design as evidence against an intelligent designer, the former appeals to good design, in particular design that's well suited to cause suffering, as evidence against a benevolent designer. To put it crudely, the problem of dysteleology is the problem of stupid design. The problem of teleological evil is the problem of malevolent design. End quote. Predation in the wild is the most obvious example. Predators with sharp teeth and claws tear the flesh off their prey and snap their bones, and often start feeding on them while they're still alive. The natural order has been designed such that animals must savagely kill and devour each other in order to survive. To quote, to quote David Attenborough, people who accuse us of putting in too much violence should see what we leave on the cutting room floor. In the context of arguments from evil, there's a distinction made between moral evil and natural evil. An example of moral evil being the misuse of free will to hurt someone, and an example of natural evil being an earthquake or natural disaster. Um, teleological evil is a subset of natural evil, but it's harder to reconcile than ordinary natural evil. You know, it's one thing to create something that can be misused to cause suffering. Someone can drown in a bathtub, but it's not as if the tub has a malevolent purpose or function. But a predator's physical and psychological attributes are aimed at savaging conscious creatures. It's not an unfortunate byproduct or a misuse of some ability or a perversion of nature. Evil has been built into the very structure of nature. Vast numbers of organisms are designed such that, such that they cannot survive unless they savagely kill and devour each other. Predators could have been scavengers. They could have been herbivores. They could have been some other kind of organism that absorbs energy without tearing sentient creatures limb from limb. An unimaginable amount of suffering visited upon confused sentient creatures could have easily been avoided if God existed. The North American short-tail shrew secretes venom from salivary glands in its lower jaw to paralyze prey. And the point of the paralysis is not to kill the prey, but it's to keep it alive over an extended period of time in order to allow for prolonged feeding. The shrew can infect its prey and then graze on it for days until it eventually succumbs to its injuries. The North American short-tailed shrew is not guilty of wrongdoing. It's not a moral agent. Neither are parasitic worms or flesh-eating bacteria. They just have the physical and psychological attributes they have in the biological order in which they find themselves where creatures are pitted against one another in a vicious fight to the death that's lasted for eons and will continue for eons. So what should we make of this designer, whoever or whatever it is? Indifference and amorality seem to be pretty safe inferences. Whoever or whatever is responsible for the general shape of the biological order is probably indifferent and amoral. What Hume called the strange mixture of good and ill which appears in life is easily accounted for on that view. Those who believe the designer is benevolent and perfectly loving could offer some kind of explanation of the mixture of good and bad, just as those who might believe in a malevolent designer could offer some kind of explanation of the mixture of good and bad, but indifference and amorality would make for an easier fit. Naturalists tend to believe that evolution by natural selection is, is primarily responsible for the general shape of the biological order. Natural selection is indifferent and amoral. Why wouldn't purely natural processes occasionally generate structures aimed at producing suffering for non-moral agents? There's nothing for the naturalists to explain here. We're not the ones who are committed to saying there's some kind of rationale behind the degree, kind, and distribution of suffering in our world. This kind of natural evil, more so than ordinary natural evil or moral evil, almost seems like a straightforward disconfirmation of the idea that a perfectly loving and good being is ultimately responsible for the design of the biological order. And I'm not making that strong of a claim this afternoon, only that teleological evil in nature, in other words, malevolent design, is strong evidence against the hypothesis that nature was designed directly or indirectly by an unsurpassably great being of perfect love and goodness. And finally, divine silence. Okay, so there's a lot there, and I feel like we covered a decent bit of this, um, looking at like, the project of like, the oddity and stuff, but Tim, where do you want to take this? Yeah, I mean, the thing I want to think about teleological suffering is that, you know, I think that the disjunctive model of creation really helps because um, is that um, it shows why they're, you know, God's authorized nature bringing about such, you know, harmful structures on creatures and functions, right? It's because he kept it open-ended. Um, he achieves, he desires goods to be um, instantiated and then leaves the rest open-ended. Um. But ultimately, right, I mean, we have to invoke our eschatology, which is that, well, you know, will these harmful creatures and what they've done to other creatures and the victims be able to be redeemed and reconciled um, to an unsurpassably good being? 
And it's like, well, we can tell a story that's, that answers that question. Yes. Um, mm -hmm. That creation will always be that way. Creation will always have this kind of strange mixture of harmony and disharmony, even though it does produce great goods, all ultimately resulting in um, a world that's very good, on, uh, that's unsurpassably good on the whole. I think that's really what, what's going to happen there. Now he's going to say that, well, even if it's indirectly designed that way, like what I'm talking about with this whole disjunctive model, even if it's indirectly designed that way, um, you know, it's still a black mark on the theory of that, that there's a, that, you know, there's this unsurpassably perfectly loving being in charge of it. Right. Of course, what I just said earlier, um, you know, is a consonant story we can tell on theism. So ultimately um, it has to ignore a theistic eschatology um, and how some of these goods that do occur um, fit in, you know, um, to the story as a whole and how these bads will fit in to mm -hmm. uh, the lives of creatures being good on the whole as well. So um, I think that, um, you know, God doesn't, you know, doesn't go, yeah, you know, create, create an executor wasp or something like that, but rather create a system that will eventually, that will produce a, a, a variety of creatures who can survive or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, and um, God knows what will happen, but he authorizes it because of what he's able to do through the suffering and, and things in the lives of those creatures. So, yeah, again, it's just, you know, same strategy there, really. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think about, and I've been dying to use the example for a while, and I think I don't think I've done it before. Um, but where I used to record um, a different spot in my house, I used to sit in front of like um, this like window, and, and within this window, there's a little like hole in the screen door um, next to the glass, and this um, smart spider set up a little web right there in between the screen door, there's like the screen of the window and like the glass part of the window, and with that, um, a bunch of bugs came in and got stuck, and you know it's still there. And it got me thinking a lot about, um, I don't know if this would count as teleologically evil, but thinking about just like animal suffering and like, like is this is the process that like God used to like bring about you and I, um, or even like, like, I'm not totally sold on evolution, but like, even like, you're like, this is the world that God created. Um, and like, that's the world we have to live with. And it's interesting to think about it. But if you think of like, one of the things that, that hit me as I was thinking about that was like. But yeah, it's also bringing about something good, which is this new world, this new creation, this thing that we're progressing towards. Even like the littlest um, examples of animal suffering are talking about um, are bringing about something even like better and greater and da da da. And obviously Emerson could push back and challenge that there is something better or greater. But like if there is, then that teleological evil, even if it does cause like horrific suffering, um, even if it does cause that, there's still that that's there's still that like that meaning behind it um that, that's coming about even through like horrific suffering does that make sense tim yeah exactly yeah there's kind of axiological trajectory mm -hmm. and um ultimately this is kind of john hout's idea of the universe's awakening which is that the universe is going through a process of awakening which is that there are further stages of the universe to come um that will have greater um uh phases of value than what we observe now mm -hmm. and god that that's what god's calling towards himself is the current stage of the universe we're in now is there'll be a better stage of the universe coming later and yeah. ultimately on a theistic eschatology in the eschaton um it will reach its perfected state mm -hmm. where it'll be unsurpassably good in itself yeah. good on the whole holy good on the whole um 
And uh, you can look at that empirically. You know, you can see that there's an actually logical trajectory in the world. And you can also see that theoretically, which is that God's going to ensure that things um, do reach that state and that point mm -hmm. eventually in the end. I, I yeah. think it's really interesting when you look at the world, right? Because it's like, look at the universe's history. The universe started out as a kind of chaotic energy field, um, you know, kind of a unified quantum field. And then it, you know, um, then um, through some kind of fluctuation, there was a very, there was very, um, uh, there was an expansion and a, you know, from a pre-inflationary state, there was an inflationary state where all you really had was, you know, hydrogen and gases and particles kind of combining with one another. And then eventually, you know, it resulted in larger structures and that, that eventually resulted in stars and big galaxies. And then within these galaxies resulted life. And then not only within the course of life resulted in moral agents, we can kind of see stages of the universe getting like realizing better things right and as swinmer notes that like us as humans are a uniquely good thing because not only are we rational and moral but we also have the choice to choose between good and evil mm -hmm. and that's something that the rest of the universe for most of its history has not had yeah so it's like well then what's more to come in the universe and john howitt's going to say well more greater stages of perfection so um, I think on theism, that's kind of what you have to expect. Um, mm. and ultimately, right. It's like, can God integrate what you saw with the spider and its victims into yeah. a beautiful hole in the end, right? Mm -hmm. Where will it always be this kind of predation and harsh competition view or will yeah. it some, some, someday turn into interconnectedness and harmony. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that. In Revelation, we see the lion laying down with the lamb as a perfect example of that. Yeah. Well, yeah, I think that's great, Tim. Let's get into this last um, data point that Emerson's going to talk about. Silence during tragedies. Say that you were a good parent and you had a child who needed to visit the doctor and undergo medical treatment. This treatment wasn't going to be pleasant, but of course there's good reason for it. There's a moral rationale behind the surface level unpleasantness. This is essentially what many theists believe about apparent tragedies. There is some greater moral purpose, some justifying reason that explains why God is allowing it to happen. We may not know what the moral rationale is in our human ignorance, but rest assured there's a reason. But a good father would be there for his child in the medical scenario. He would try to explain that there's a purpose and what that purpose was, and regardless, he would try to be a comforting presence. The fact that many victims of tragedies don't feel God's comforting presence is more likely on naturalism than on theism. In response to the existence of tragedies, theists will often invoke an unknown purpose or unknown moral reasons, but this doesn't affect the point. Shouldn't God be comforting the victims of tragedies? Isn't that what a good father would do? Some feel his comforting presence in the midst of tragedies, but many do not. This fact is less surprising on naturalism than it is on theism. One final word on this unknown reasons strategy that many theists adopt when faced with tragic suffering. Thomas Nagel once wrote of the problem of evil, even if a theist supposes that the problem has a solution that we humans are unable to grasp, that would mean that God, who created us with the capacity to discover the laws of nature and find the world scientifically intelligible, has made us incapable of finding the world morally intelligible. These are powerful reasons for doubt, and they have certainly destroyed the faith of some believers. End quote. To those theists who appeal to reasons unknown to us, at least we can agree that the world seems morally unintelligible. Okay, I'll just say here first, because it just, like, I didn't even really write this down, but I was thinking about it, like, when Emerson's talking about, like, this like this problem, I'm like, well, that's exactly the role of the church. Like, that's the role that the um, that God has given the church um, to, like, be there and support people who go through, like, tragedies and suffering and things like this. Um, so, I mean, that was my initial reaction, but what do you think, Tim? And you're muted, just so you know. Yeah, um, exactly. I mean, I think that also, you know, there is a there is value in 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 silence, which is that it forces us 
to learn about what we've gone through. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, it, and it puts an emphasis on us to be able to triumph over our sufferings, but also it forces us to be, like you said, to be in these relational communities, um, which is that the divine silence can also force someone to meditate as the psalmists do on God, where are you? God, all I want to do is be in your presence. These things of that sort. Um, um, I can, I can, you know, barely go on. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, in the absence of that, absence of that, you know, would we really call out to God with such fervor? Um, so I think those are some, 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 some things that do result from kind of divine silence and tragedies, right? Mm-hmm. Is that God will, and think about, here's again, eschatology, God will comfort every victim in the end. But currently right now, we have the great, we've been given a great gift and privilege to be able to learn through what we've gone through um, um, such that we can gain experiential knowledge that we wouldn't have. And we can take that to when God comforts us. And I think that our experiential knowledge and divine silence, when we reach our destiny with God comforting us, will make God's comfort mean so much more than if he just did it now. Hmm. So that's what I think. Yeah, I mean, I think that's great. And I don't have really too much to add there, Tim. So yeah, let's get into Emerson's um, concluding remarks then as we start to wrap up shop here. So those who are theists in the audience may have been thinking while I was presenting my case, well, this isn't the problem for me because I can explain divine hiddenness and animal suffering and so forth. I don't dispute that you could explain those things, but if you think that undermines my case, then you've misunderstood my case. Merely being able to explain the data and show that it's not logically incompatible with your view is a very low bar. We want good explanatory models that predict our observations in which what we observe falls out of the model. We don't want to have to endlessly jump through hoops just to account for ordinary observations like the ones I've listed this evening. There's nothing one can point to and truthfully say that a God is absolutely necessary to explain that. And likewise, there's no suffering so appallingly pointless that a believer couldn't conjure up an explanation for why an all-good, all-powerful God would continue to behave in a way indistinguishable from non-existence. The same goes for divine hiddenness, confusion around salvation, and so on. I think our task is to construct competing models that explain the evidence and then compare the theistic and non-theistic models and ask which provides a better explanation of the world, all things considered. We take a look at the facts of our world, soteriological confusion, eons of animal suffering, divine hiddenness, and so on, and ask, would these facts be facts in a world for which an unsurpassably great, perfectly loving being is responsible? In summary, then, we've seen, we've seen six respects in which naturalism provides a better explanation of the world than theism. For all these reasons, I think that disbelief in God is eminently reasonable. The cumulative weight of the evidence tips the scale in favor of atheism. God probably does not exist. Thank you. All righty. There we go. Um, yeah. Awkward pause of John clapping right there. Is <laughs> um, Tim, any, like, last thoughts or things you want to say? I mean, I thought Emerson's closing was great. Like, I mean, I basically just agree with him on everything he said with the conclusion. So, yeah, yeah. I, I think that Emerson did a great job of presenting his case. Um, this, I mean, Zach, you and I both agree. I think both agree here. If we, we want atheists doing this, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. we don't want the other stuff that, you know, you and I will run into like on TikTok. Mm-hmm. Um, That's why I don't scroll through TikTok ever, like literally ever. I stay away from that. Dude, it's, it's, you gotta be careful. <laughs> yeah you get, you get, there's a lot of landmines um so but yeah i think he had a great case i think that obviously there are obvious um flaws and responses that theists are apt to give um and um i think i made them 
And I think that uh, we had a good discussion about them. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, I thought this was great and yeah, a lot of love and respect to Emerson and like this video, I chose this video cause I was like, and I asked you just like, this is really good. And I was like, it wasn't like, Oh, this video sucks. We've got to go take Emerson down. It was literally just the opposite. I was like, this is really great and fresh and it's challenging the way I think. And I love this, um, which is why I, we did this. So, yeah, I mean, I thought this was great and thanks for your time, Tim. And yeah, that's, that's that. So any last thoughts or things you want to say before we close up? Yeah, man. Uh, just thanks for having me on again, dude. I always love coming on here. We tend to uh, discuss evil a lot, which is like yeah. a never ending topic. Uh, it's a fun topic. It's one of my favorites. Um, yeah. So I just look forward to coming on and responding to more things. Yeah. I mean, I don't even know how this happens. Like you, I feel like last time we talked, you're like, why are you always talking about evil? And I'm just like, I'm not even intending to. It's just, it's just like, to me, it's like, I don't know. It's just like, it comes up and I, obviously it's super important. And yeah, I mean, it's not even like I'm trying to be like, oh, we're going to, the channel where you focus on the problem of you. Like, no, that's not my goal at all. <laughs> it just kind of happens. And I'm like, um, okay, I guess we're going with this. So yeah, yeah that's awesome, I, dude. I enjoyed this. And yeah, I mean, I encourage everyone as we close up here, um, check out Tim and his YouTube channel, Invoking Theism. It'll be just hopefully added in the YouTube title. If not, it'll be in the description. And yeah, if you're new here, I encourage you to subscribe, leave a like, all that fun stuff. And if you really value our content, um, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash projects. Have a goal of having one new patron a month. Um, so if that wants to be you the month of September, that'd be huge um, to that one person, literally a dollar a month. That would help a lot. And yeah, that's that. So Tim, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, man. Um, and I'm sure we'll be doing this again sometime. So I'm sure this won't be the last time we talk about God and evil and things like that. So for sure. yeah, that. Well, thanks everyone for tuning in. Have a good one and God bless.